Hello, yeah, my name is Brian. I was on, um, I actually took a sabbatical this summer, and when I was on sabbatical, Brian Recker texted me and said, hey, here's, um, said, here's some stuff I think that could be helpful for your talk on politics. I said, what? He said, yeah, you're doing a, a talk on politics in advance. I was like, well, that's pretty cool. But that's, that's going to be tough, man. I tried to say a whole bunch of stuff in 30 to 40 minutes. He's like, oh, no, we only got 15. <laughs> so I don't got time for jokes. Let's just get right into it. Politics is a, uh, politics is a broad topic. And um, what I want to do over the next 15 minutes is focus specifically on how we shepherd our people through political crises or issues as pastors and leaders. This is not a discussion of what issues we should address, nor is it a discussion of what matrix we should use when deciding what we should address. We're not going to talk about how Christians or leaders should engage with the government. I only want to talk about how we should pastor our people when the issues that they're dealing with in their very real lives become politicized. And I want to do that by touching on four, uh, first four problems that we are confronted with in this kind of pastoring, which if we don't acknowledge are likely to torpedo our ministry efforts. And then I want to give four strategies that I think will help mitigate those problems. First problem, the marriage of political conservatism and moral or religious conservatism has not been good for the church. It has not been good for the church. And there are different ways to tell the story of how this happened, but the point is religious conservatives were not always aligned with the Republican Party, and and then in the 1980s, they were. Um, And the reason that's a problem is because there there has been now for three decades a political party that's essentially laid claim to the gospel for its purposes. And I want you to know I'm coming to you and saying, saying this as a conservative. Uh, but the, the, the consequences of this, I'm, I'm sure are obvious to many of you and um, it, it are not hard to, to figure out. I mean, there's just, there's snakes in the grass now. So, so we have politicians who use the label of Christianity to get votes. There are voters who think that they are bound to vote in one direction because they're Christians. And then there are non-Christians who are put off by the gospel because they think wrongly that being a Christian means they must be of a certain political persuasion. It's very similar to what happened with uh, the Emperor Constantine. When he became a Christian, well, that was a great thing, but then he made it the official religion of Rome, and I would say that was not a great thing. He imperialized the gospel, and so we don't have an imperialized gospel, but we do have a politicized gospel, and the gospel is proprietary to Jesus Christ alone, not to a political party. And so there's, his, there's now some terrible confusion in the church regarding politics, which takes us to the second problem. Political issues and political philosophy are two different things, but most people don't understand that. And you may not understand that, so I'm going to very briefly explain what the difference is and why the difference is important. Political parties and politics have underneath them a way of thinking, a philosophy of governing. And that philosophy of governing informs our, uh, uh, our approach to all manner of different issues. But most people choose the political party they want to be a part of, not because of the governing philosophy, but because of issues like abortion or the environment or caring for the poor. And so the result is that we demonize the other party because we say, how how could they not care about this issue that I care about? And so we define political parties by issues alone. The result is that psychologists have noted that people's political beliefs have become similar to their religious beliefs. In fact, for many people, it has been demonstrated again and again that their political beliefs are not not very often or at all based on objective facts, but are based on a deeper sense of morality that they themselves cannot even explain. And that is because their approach to politics is framed by issues only, issues which often rightly evoke in us those gut instincts. However, political philosophy is not so black and white. 
And it's, it's what a lot of other things are based on. I have an image for you to show you. This is a highly digestible, easy-to-read graphic that I'm hoping you'll... <laughs> now listen, listen, I don't expect you to be able to read this. I know you can't read it. I have hard copies of this at my table if you'd like one of these. I want to show you what an image like this can help you with. So this is an image showing the left and the right and the different philosophical assumptions that each side makes and then how those things trickle into their approach to all manner of things. So for instance, on the left... Um, one of the things that it says that they focus on here is society. And you know what? Society is a good thing. The Bible cares about society. On the right, there's more of an emphasis on the individual. Well, the individual is also a good thing, and the Bible cares about that too. But the way those emphasis get traced out affect almost everything else. For instance, on the left, the way that they think about criminals is that they are victims of uh, social injustice, which we know oftentimes that's the case. Uh, we're going to hear a little bit about foster care in a few minutes. My wife and I, we've dealt with some people through the foster care system, and then we hear their story, and they have been victims, man. Some of that can at times be true. But then on the right, you see that because there's an emphasis on the individual, when we think of, say, for instance, criminals, we think that these are individuals who have made bad choices. And we know that also can be true. But if you only live, if, if you're blind to the philosophy and you only live in the issues and, you, and then you end up kind of just living on one side of this thing blindly, it affects everything. Even us as pastors, it affects our theology. Let me ask you this question. Do people need Jesus because they've sinned and need to be forgiven or because they're in bondage and need to be liberated? The Bible says both. Jesus says he came to do both. He came to do both of those things. And so... There are cases to be made for and against the assumptions on both sides of these things. And the Bible does not only make the case for one side. The problem is when we only talk about issues and then work backwards, sometimes we make the Bible give endorsements that it doesn't give. Consider uh, abortion. If you're convinced like I am that it is a moral issue and I feel quite strongly about that, it's easy to make assumptions about Democrats because their party is pro-choice. But there are actually pro-life Democrats who on that issue disagree, and yet they hold to the underlying governing philosophy of Democrats. And a pro-choice Democrat may be wrong about abortion, but not necessarily wrong about everything. I don't think you have to be like a civics major to, 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 um, to walk away with even some shallow a shallow appreciation for, for these differences. And I think even a shallow uh, appreciation for these differences can guard you against thinking that one party is more or less biblical than another. We should avoid doing that. And uh, the reason for that is our third, uh, our third problem. The Bible gives little guidance on how Christians should engage in politics. I said, I said little instead of none because I think maybe there's some general principles there, but there's n virtually nothing practical. The Bible was not written with a Democratic-Republican mind. So it does not give us much in the way of helping us understand self-government. There was no context for that in the early church. Governing is very complicated, and the New Testament is mainly focused on helping Christians know how to submit to their leaders in exile more than it's written to help them lead their governments in exile. So Christians should be very open-handed when it comes to governing philosophy in a democratic republic because the Bible doesn't give us one. The, the fourth problem, and I think that this is the most important, this is the one that we are confronted, confronted with, I think, in such, I think this is the one doing the most damage. The fourth problem is this, political issues do not threaten the church, political division does. Christians have always grieved under oppression. But the kingdom of God is not shaken even a little bit by governments taking political positions that are contrary to the ethics of the kingdom. 
The gates itself, Jesus said, cannot overcome the church, much less a Pontius Pilate or a Nero or marauding armies in Europe or communism or secular humanism or Republicans or Democrats. Division from within, though, is a real threat. Jesus said that one of our greatest witnesses would be our love for one another, and so there's big implications for our mission when the church is divided. The New Testament over and over and over talks about how the church needs to be unified. But even beyond that, it seems that God hates division simply for what it is, like even beyond the missional effects. Proverbs 6 says that there's six things the Lord hates, and the last one on the list is one who sows discord among brothers. And I think that one of the greatest problems in our church today is not necessarily how Christians vote, but how they relate to other Christians who vote differently than them. And I, I, think, I think it's a serious problem we have in our churches that we have to reckon with as pastors. Republicans thinking that Democrats can't really be Christians and condescending to them at every turn. Or uh, a, a Democrat in, in your church withholding love and perhaps even gossiping and slandering uh, their brothers and sisters in Christ because they're libertarians or Republicans. I mean, just look at the stuff our people put on Facebook, with the, the absolute hatred for people who vote differently than they do. And these are Christians in our church doing this. The issues that we disagree on are of far less consequence to the health of the church than the manner in which those disagreements are handled. And they are being handled badly by many of the people in our churches. So those are some of the, the problems. And so when we need to address a political issue, by that, I mean when we need to address a gospel issue that our culture has politicized, I think we need to be dealing with those problems. And, and so here are four strategies I think that can help. The first is to regularly, regularly affirm and critique the strengths and weaknesses of both political parties. So Democrats aren't right or wrong about everything. Republicans aren't right or wrong about everything. There's a way to help people see that. Um, and I, I think a way you can do that is let's say that you're preaching or teaching or having a conversation in your community group about a, a, a justice or some kind of justice issue. You know, that's a great opportunity to first take a minute to affirm the kinds of justice that both sides care about. You can affirm the kind that, that the left cares about, being good stewards of creation and the environment, and then the kind that the right cares about, like the sanctity of human life. And then say, hey, the Bible cares about both of these things. Doing things like that often will, will model something to people where you, they see you being able to affirm and also critique both sides. What you need to remember is this. People have a moral attachment to their politics. So it actually doesn't matter how well-reasoned you are. If someone thinks you're against their party, a defensive mechanism will kick in and they're just not going to hear anything you have to say about Jesus and the gospel because all they hear is you're against their party. So you have to, uh, my recommendation, if you're a leader, is to make it impossible for anyone to know how you vote. I told you I'm a conservative earlier. It's the first time from this stage I've ever said that. My goal in our church has always been I don't want anyone to know how I vote. Not because you're a centrist, maybe you're not, but because you want everyone in the room to hear what you're saying about Jesus so you can shepherd them. Tim Keller says you want to preach to who you want to be in the room, and he's talking about unbelievers. If you want non-Christians to come, you got to preach like they're there. And I think the same idea applies. If you want people from across the political spectrum to come to your church, you got to preach like they're really there. you got to preach like, even if you think your crowd is all conservatives, preach like progressives are in the room. Preach like that they're in the room, and then prove that your message is not owned by any of them. Was Jesus a conservative? Well, there are times that he uh, did appear to conserve the wisdom and traditions of the culture that he was born into. Or, or was he a progressive? Well, there were times 
where he seemed to progress into a new kind of kingdom and a new kind of thinking. Jesus makes it very easy to, to do this, to affirm and critique both sides, because I think that's what he did. The second strategy is to regularly remind your church that their hope is not in human government. And I think one of the best ways to do that is to not get too excited when your guy gets elected and not get too disappointed when your guy gets voted out or rejected. I think you model something with your restraint and reminding people that actually, man, it's great to get involved. It's great to vote. We're not really hope. Our hope isn't really in all this, right? It's definitely not. It's definitely not in this. It definitely is in Jesus. And so we, we model that in a whole bunch of ways. Third strategy is to put every political argument in its best possible light. Can't emphasize enough how bad we are at doing this. We are so bad, myself included. The easy road, the ineffective road, the cheap seats is to set up straw men and then knock them down. And when you do that, it only proves to people that think differently than you that you don't understand them or you don't really want to. And on top of that, if you really want people to be open to changing their minds, you do need more than reason. Uh, Jonathan Haidt, say, um, he's a, uh, I don't actually know if he's atheist or agnostic. He's not a believer. He's a psychologist. And he wrote a book called The Righteous Mind, which I cannot recommend enough. And um, in that book, he offers a ton of evidence that moral and political judgments are actually initiated in the part of the brain that is intuitive. And, uh, and that reason, we use the part of our brain that involves reason after the fact to justify the things we've already decided are true. That's the way, that's the way most of us work. And there is a ton of evidence and research to suggest that's how, that's how human beings work. And so when it comes to morals and politics, most of the time our opinions are formed by gut instincts and then we create reasonable arguments to defend those things. Therefore, if you are going to criticize someone, you have to deal with their intuition and emotion first. You have to deal with it first. Can you now see the wisdom of 1 Corinthians 13? Truth without love is noise. It's just noise to the psychology of the brain. Because people are moved not first by reason. They're moved by their intuition. Do you like me? Do you love me? Do I like you? Do I love you? When you put someone's argument in the best possible light, when you say it, in such a way that they say, yes, that's what I've been trying to say. When you take the time to do that, you've taken the time to prove not only do you understand what they're saying, it's a value to you. It's a way of actually loving them. And it softens their intuitive and emotional response to you, which makes, their, which makes them more likely to engage the logical and reasonable part of their brain. One of the things that Haidt says in his book is that um, there's, there's a lot of evidence to show that most people, when they do change their mind, it is not because of reasoned arguments. It's because they're in relation with, they are in relationship with family and friends who love them who were able to change their minds. Uh, show of hands, has anyone's opinion ever been changed by cable news? It doesn't, it doesn't work, actually. Cable news, that way of arguing, man, it riles up and gets excited, you know, the people that think like us, but it doesn't convince anybody because it's not how the brain works. People want to be loved, and when you put an argument in its best possible light, it's a way of loving someone so that they will really listen to you. And then you can respectfully critique it. Fourth strategy and last strategy is to keep your activism and your shepherding distinct. As a, and I don't know how many people this applies to, but I think it's worth saying, as a citizen, you have the right to be involved in a democratic republic. We need Christians to be involved. But it's easy to bring your activism into your shepherding if you're a leader in the church. 
In other words, let's say you join a campaign to help someone get elected. I think that's a great thing to do. But if you're a leader in the church, you don't want anyone thinking that your care for their soul is going to be in any way affected or influenced by their vote. And so I think there's room for disagreement. There's room for disagreement on how much pastors and leaders in the church should be involved in politics. I'm not trying to tell you whether you should get involved in politics or the degree to which you should get involved. But if you do, my point is that your ministry should not appear to be an arm of your political activity. And most people will start with the assumption that it probably is. So you have your work cut out for you. It's an uphill battle and you will need to bend over backwards to prove that the two are distinct. In closing, I want you to remember that the reason we should care about politics is because the kingdom of God is political. It is political. We have a ruler, we have laws, and we have ethics. And we should never be backfooted or apologetic when confronting the political persuasions of the sheep in our churches when they are out of step with the politics of the gospel. The degree to which we should engage with changing culture is something Christians have debated for thousands of years, and I'm not trying to give answers on that. What is clear, straightforward, and a God-given responsibility is to shepherd the flocks of God among us. And so we should be thoughtful, empathetic, good listeners, but also bold, courageous, and quick to wade into the mud when our sheep are stuck there. That is everything. I think now we are going to just take some time at our tables, and I would encourage you to um, maybe process some of this, maybe confess something Donnie said earlier, if you feel like this is an area that maybe there's been a blind spot in, and then please just remember to take some time and, uh, and pray together. Thanks.